All right, everybody, welcome to the True Blue Cubs podcast. I am your host, Joe Kilgallen. If you were checking out this podcast for the very first time, welcome. This is a podcast where I stamp comedian. That's right, I'm a stamp comedian. Feel free to YouTube me. I could use the views. Uh, interview fellow diehard Cubs fans about why they love our beloved Cubs so much. And we'll recap what's happening present day a little bit there toward the end. Uh, I want to give some shout outs to some past guests, because if you're checking out this one, you should go back and check out episodes, uh, previous episodes. I had Crawley from Crawley's Cubs Kingdom on. I had Mike Bridenstine, who's a stamp comedian slash baseball historian. He will really wow you with some information. And I've also had uh, Dom Frederick on, the director of morale for the Chicago Cubs. Plus, I wedged in a couple episodes of just me ranting in there. Now, today's episode, I'm very pumped up for uh, someone I, I met a few years ago at something called the Unconventional Cubs Convention. I believe I said that's kind of a mouthful. Uh, at the G-Man Tavern here in Chicago, is run by a good friend of ours, Danny Rocket from the San Ranto podcast. And uh, great baseball knowledge and just a fun person to talk to. I've even played uh, internet games, I believe, with. Without further ado, enough rambling from me. Let's bring on the one and only Sarah Sanchez. How you doing, Sarah? Hey, Joe. Good to see you virtually. It's been a long time. <laughs> it has been. But we did. We met, I think, at the end of the 2019 season, which was just... A bummer of a letdown toward the end of that year. What nine game losing streak and Madden's last season and watching Yachty strike out with Ben Zobrist on the mound, if I recall correctly. Yes, it was at the bar that day. Yeah, that was like yeah, the one we... highlight. <laughs> That's the only part of that game I choose to remember. That's the only part of Yachty or Molina's career I will choose <laughs> to remember. Oh, you have not seen. I like once a year or so, I get Cardinals fans all riled up on Twitter by letting them know that Yadier Molina would not be a Hall of Famer if he played anywhere else and that he's kind of borderline on that whole, like, in the hall at all thing, let alone being a first ballot Hall of Famer. It's a surefire way to get the best fans of baseball back then. Oh, definitely. He's, if you go to, like, everyone listening, check out Jay Jaffe. He's got, like, a really great, like, Hall of Fame, like, what makes a Hall of Fame player. He's got, like, a, a Jaffe scale, I think it is. You could find it pretty much anywhere. He's a great follow on Twitter, too. And he's Yachty's basically Jason Kendall. Jason Kendall. Jason, Jason Kendall's ready offensively. You know yeah, what I always no, thought I... Jason Kendall looked like? Jason Kendall, when he first came into the league, I thought looked like Freddie Prince Jr. That's that's a good comp. Uh, yeah, Yachty is just, you know, he's, he's it's all intangibles. It's not a lot of the numbers. And I, I know that Cardinals fans love him. I'm sure that if he was a Cub, we would love him too. But that doesn't make him a first ballot Hall of Famer. It's going to be fun oh, when that conversation starts. Yeah, that'll be a, a joyous week on Twitter for everyone involved. So, Sarah, I've got to, I always like to lead off right with this obvious question. Shout out to obvious shirts. What made you fall in love with the Chicago Cubs? So I actually grew up in rural Utah, and the only baseball teams that I could see all the time were the Cubs or the Braves because they had the super stations, right? So you had WGN, you had TBS. And I, I was a pretty little kid, but my dad used to play like wiffle ball with us in the in the living room. And then we moved the game outside when we were like four or five because we started hitting the ball too hard. And my mom was upset about that. Um, my dad would later like coach the Little League team and the Babe Ruth team and all that jazz. So like total baseball immersed family. But when I was a little kid, we were watching the Saturday game of the week and I was like three or four years old. It was the Sandberg game. And I just picked right there. I was like, OK, well, I like that team because they won and look at all the home runs. And I, I stuck it out. Uh, I watched every Cubs game growing up. I'd run home from school to like watch the part I'd recorded on those old VCRs 
to make sure that I didn't miss anything. And yeah, I just stuck it out and happened to move to Chicago all these years later. So happened, happy circumstance. That's amazing. That's a great, I didn't know you were from Utah. That's so cool. It's interesting that the 84 Cubs was your first team that you loved. Crawley had a similar uh, experience. The 89 Cubs were my first team. And I know so many people who they were like, it was that playoff team that lured me in. And then you thought to yourself, wow, well, we didn't win this year, but maybe next year. And then it's just gut punches. Yeah. So I didn't realize quite what I was getting myself into when I was four years old. But I will say this because my brother did the opposite. My brother picked the Braves and then he sort of became like a fair weather fan. So in my lifetime, my brother has claimed the following as his favorite team. The Braves, the Mariners, the Giants, the Yankees. It's, It's sort of ridiculous. And so he's gotten to watch a lot more winning baseball, but I got to watch the Cubs win it all in 2016. So I feel like I got the better end of that bargain because there's nothing like watching your team break a historic drought. Nothing. I agree. I was talking about this with a guy who's a big Manchester City fan. And I guess Man City, I don't really follow the Premier League or, or soccer in general. Sorry, everyone listening, if you're a big fan. But they are similar to like the Cubs. And he showed me a video because I think they finally won in like 2013, I want to say. And it was like one of those Cubs videos that we all love so much on YouTube where it shows all these fans just like biting their fingernails, looking up to the sky, praying, hoping and all this. And then when they got that goal or the time ran out, they absolutely went berserk and people are crying. And that's what I always thought of as a Cubs fan. Growing up, I remember, you know, people are jerks like, oh, they're never going to win. Why are you supporting a loser? They don't care. It's just a just a big beer garden, Wrigley Field. That one's, you know, all this a lot of lies, too. And I remember thinking to myself, I can't leave now because imagine imagine if you gave up on the Cubs, say, after 2011, the Mike Quaddy Cubs, which we all know is very painful. And then you had to live with yourself seeing what happened in 2016. I would never forgive myself. Yeah, I'm never going to give up on the Cubs. They're my favorite team forever. I'm, I'm a little down on like where they're at right now with this whole like Jed Hoyer. It's not a rebuild, but it looks a lot like a rebuild type of thing that you're doing here, buddy. Um, but we can talk about that. We can get into that. What's funny about the whole like nail biting, like fan frenzy thing. So here's my one claim to fame. Uh, outside of writing stuff. So when I was at the game six of the World Series, I watched it at Murphy's Bleachers. And a few months later, I'm watching the Let's Play 2 documentary, the Pearl Jam one. And I recognized this guy in the game seven montage because I was standing next to him during game six. I looked down and there I am standing right there. And our game six reactions in the early game made it into the game seven montage. That's how fired up I was <laughs> during the World Series. And I'm like, I knew it was game six, not game seven, because I watched game seven at Bernie's. I couldn't get into Murphy's. The line was around the block. And so I was like, that is not game seven. That is definitely game six, but it's in the game seven. Okay. I would love to see that. Is that anywhere <laughs> on YouTube? I want to check that out again, because I, I love seeing fan reactions of people I know. I think I mentioned this on an earlier podcast. Uh, when Marquis Marquis still does this like all the time, I think half their programming is top 10 lists, but they did like a top 10, like moments at Wrigley field or something like that, or, or top 10 Cubs pitching moments. It wasn't just at Wrigley field. I'm in the Jake Arrieta clip when he threw the no hitter at LA. Cause I was at that game. Nice. And then, um, when Greg Maddox got his 3000 strikeout, it cut to my cousin miles 
So I remember being like, that's insane that there are two kill gallons in the top 10 on this marquee show. So I, I, I love seeing people I know in big moments. So I'm definitely going to check that out, Sarah. So you are another fan that became a diehard Cubs fan through the power of WGN. Now, this is something that has just been bugging me lately. Now, I, I, I'd been preparing myself for a while. I mean, it's been going on for some time with a lot of the Cubs game. I felt like every year more and more Cubs games were going to Comcast. Well, NBC Sportsnet it became. And and then ABC7 took some games. So you kind of in your mind were like, ah, this WGN thing's not going to last forever, which is so heartbreaking. But if I were in charge of Marquee or the Cubs in general, I would immediately think to myself, we got to keep some connection there. I think that going forward, maybe you and I, Sarah, you could give a testimonial. I could create like a little documentary sponsored by the True Blue Cubs podcast where I get all of these great Cubs fans from all around the country who fell in love with the Cubs through WGN. Good comedian friend of mine, Roy Wood Jr. from The Daily Show. I know he'll do it because he fell in love. He grew up in Alabama and loved the Cubs. He chose them over the Braves because... His dad wouldn't let him watch the Braves. I can't remember the reason. No, because he had to watch. The Cubs were on during the day, and his dad wanted to watch reruns of the show Hunter. And his that's why he couldn't watch any Braves games, even though all his friends were Braves fans. Anyhow, though, I get everyone together. We do like a testimonial thing, send it to Marquee, and we get them to air one game a week on WGN. Every Sunday, it's the WGN game of the week, and that way at least keeps that going. They get six of the seven games are on Marquee. They can even simulcast it. For the people around the country who don't get WGN now, which I think a lot of people would still have that basic cable. But there needs to be a connection there still, don't you think? Yeah, there does need to be a connection there. Although what's wild about the WGN thing, and this is one of those times where MLB really just like cut off their nose despite them despite their face. You know, that MLB recognized the power that WGN and TBS had to create these fan pockets all over the country, right? Like you have people our age who are Braves and Cubs fans forever because they grew up somewhere where there wasn't baseball and that's who they could watch. Um, Rather than trying to make that a thing for everybody, right? Like tell everybody (laughs) to figure out some way to nationalize it. They pulled those games from the WGN that you can see in my hometown in Utah. So like if you watch WGN out there now, you'll never see a Cubs game on that WGN. You'll just see like whatever old programming they have like old Magnum PI or like oh, whatever wow. they put on there. You can only watch the Cubs games on WGN locally or could before Marquee existed. So what I would love to see is some of these regional networks, like the Marquees, the Yes Network, whatever it is the Dodgers are doing out in LA, expand their regions a little bit to try to get some of those fans in. And I just don't know that they'll ever do it because it's a big market, small market team thing. It has to be negotiated at the highest levels. The Reds don't like the idea that the Cubs have all the fans in Cincinnati or whatever. So it, it just it's just at an impasse. And it's one of those things that MLB had something great and they're never going to do it again because they'd rather have this blackout map that is terrible. The blackout map is is awful. And I appreciate you always calling it out whenever you can on Twitter. Everyone, you got to follow Sarah on Twitter. It's at BCB underscore Sarah. No H at the end. We, 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 know how to, we know how to say Sarah. You don't need to add the extra letter. Sarah, S-A-R-A. I like that. I prefer your spelling of Sarah, by the way, Thank if you. I could compliment you on that. So had a lot I, to do with it. You had a lot to do with it? Nothing. Oh, I got <laughs> I understand. Well, your parents were very efficient. So the regional sports network thing, 
I think it's going to kill the long-term growth of the sport with all these blackouts. Now, I lived in LA from 2014 to 2017, and I remember thinking to myself, this is great because I get to see so many Cubs games except for when they're in LA, and I wanted to go to those games anyway. But man, it seems like a detriment to the long-term growth of the sport where like the NFL does a very smart job. They will resell the same project. I remember reading somewhere like they had Thursday Night Football where the streaming rights they sold to Amazon, the network rights they sold to CBS, and then they were able to simulcast the game on their own NFL network. So it was the same product sold in three different places. I mean, that's just genius business on so many fronts. And yet in baseball and the MLB.TV app is a great app. It's actually the app that kind of inspired so much of the other apps that we know today. I read a thing about how HBO Go hired the same people MLB did because they were like, this is the wave of the future. So do you ever think that Marquee will eventually have their own app where no matter where you live, you could stream the games live. You might have to pay like, I don't know, $5 a month or something like that. God, I hope so. That's the whole point, right? Like my mother would watch every single game out in Utah. She became a huge Cubs fan in 2015 and 16 when the Cubs got good, partly to like spite my brother because she saw him rooting against the Cubs. And she was like, this is ridiculous. Sarah's been waiting her entire life that I'm going to jump on the Cubs bandwagon. But she, she hasn't jumped off, which has been super cute. She'll occasionally like text me things when I'm working and be like, I know you can't watch the game. So I'll text you play by play. And I'm like, I'm listening on the radio. And she's like, no, I'll tell you Rizzo hit a home run. I'm like, okay, that's great. Uh, Shout out to my mom and all the moms texting play by play while their daughters are at work. Um, That's what Marquis should do. That is what the yes network should do. That's what all of these places should do. And I know there are some complications around the blackout map and getting, just getting rid of it, but it cannot possibly be worse than what they've created. You know, a couple of years ago, I went to Montgomery, Alabama for a work trip. Montgomery is like, I don't know, 90 minutes-ish, I guess, from Atlanta, where the Cubs were playing the Braves. I couldn't watch Cubs and Braves games, despite having an MLB TV subscription, because I was in the blackout zone. But Montgomery doesn't, like all the places I was at, my hotel, the restaurants, whatever, they didn't actually get the TV station that streamed Braves games. So I literally could not watch the Cubs play the Braves 90 minutes away from Atlanta. And if you're a kid growing up in Montgomery, that should be your team. Like you should know everything about the Atlanta Braves. And the fact that they don't do it is just, it's mind boggling. It's like, if you live in Iowa, you can't be a fan of any of the teams you could drive to go see. You're just blacked out from like seven of them. Yeah. My mom lives in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And there's, it's just so bizarre. And there's parts of Ohio I've heard where they're like, I'm in Columbus. I, I remember someone saying, I think they fixed it since, but there was someone that's like, I should be able to watch both Cleveland and Cincinnati. But one time they were playing each other and they couldn't find the feed for either. It's just either. stupid. It doesn't, I mean, mind boggling is putting it lightly. I mean, we could use some choice words because there's just no, I, I know the smaller market teams, like you were saying, the Reds, Cincinnati probably hate all the Cubs fans, you know, paying to see the Cubs play or, you know, via TV. But who is this helping long-term? Making your product more difficult for your fans to consume is the stupidest thing. Everyone listening, I imagine you've been on a website before and you're trying to make a purchase and you have to keep clicking on stuff and it becomes more and more difficult. And you're basically yelling at your computer going, I'm trying to give you money. Why are you making it hard for me to give you money? It doesn't. And that's what Major League Baseball is doing as a whole. And um yeah, I mean, you and I could have a whole other podcast about the long-term growth of the of Major League Baseball and what they should and shouldn't be doing because, 
hopefully that's the one thing that I'm very excited about with Theo um, being in that room yeah. at the very least. I don't know how much power he'll have, but just having his brain in that room is like, okay, good. Um, okay. So you became a Cubs fan in 1984. Uh, great year for many reasons. Um, I was born that year. <laughs> and they also uh, you know, won the NL East. Diehard Cubs fans will know is the East back then. Sadly lost to the Padres in a best of five. So close. One game away. They were up 2-0, tragically. Who was your favorite player growing up? Ryan Sandberg. And it was not just because of the Sandberg game. Like, obviously, that was my initial touch point with the team. But the thing that really stood out to me about Sandberg, and I, I'm, you know, shout out to my dad, who spent hours with me watching baseball games and explaining what was happening and different things that were going on so that I could really appreciate it. Um, but his defense was so incredible. And I loved that he had like this airless streak that nobody could touch for years, right? And that he was just this guy who was so, he was so quiet about going out and doing his job and doing it really well. Um, and I remember the day Ryan Sandberg retired the first time, like the fake retirement, I was bawling because I wasn't expecting it. And, you know, this is my guy who's supposed to go to the Hall of Fame and he's retiring early and what is happening right now. Uh, and I, you know, I just always loved the way that he played the game. Ironically, a lot of that old school baseball stuff, I kind of, as an adult, don't like as much. Like I would much rather the bat flips and the celebrations and we can talk about all of that. I'm pretty emphatic about burning down all of the unwritten rules. But at the time, um, yeah, the, just the way Ryan Sandberg approached the game and how he did everything so I don't want to say perfectly because he obviously made mistakes, but like everything that he did was very deliberate. It was very trained. Have you ever listened to his Hall of Fame acceptance speech? I, I love it. I absolutely love it. And I love that he gave my favorite player of all time, Andre Dawson, a shout out. Yeah. So I one of the things a lot of people don't know about me is that my day job is in speech and debate. I actually ran debate programs for seven years at different high schools prior to the current role that I'm in at a nonprofit. And I used to show that speech to my teens, both because it's a great speech, but also because it was sort of the ethos that I wanted to cultivate on my teams. Like the name on the front is a lot more important than the name on the back. Show up every day with respect and like don't show up not knowing how to do the little things. Everybody on this team should know how to do the little things. You know, we talked about everybody needing to be able to lay down a bunt and it was more important than being able to just hit 40 home runs. And he did that right on the aftermath of the steroid era. So like you had, that was such a weird cultural thing for a guy who had always been so quiet <laughs> to call out the steroid era on this stage. Um, and I thought that that was really impressive and really important. So Brian Samberg, historic favorite player, very different from my current favorite player. <laughs> we'll get to that. No, you know what though? Different. And I know what you're saying with the difference, because I know who your favorite player is and we'll, we'll dive into that soon. Cause I, I know it's gonna be really fun talking to you about your favorite player. Cause like, I love talking with people who have a deep passion and you definitely have, have it for this man with Sandberg and the whole play the game, the right way thing. I don't know what his thoughts are. I haven't heard his latest thoughts about bath flipping or anything like that, but I 100% agreed with the message and still do with the idea of play hard, get dirty. I think, and I think your current favorite player has that too, playing hard, getting dirty, breaking up a double play when you can, even though now that's basically been outlawed. Yeah. Um, so stupid. And there lies the, we'll just say the favorite player. I don't know why I'm making it seem like it's some <laughs> big reveal. Wilson Contreras, everyone is Sarah's favorite player. The background there. 
There you go, Willie. So Contreras and Sandberg both have that very much in common. And if Sandberg were playing today, um, you know, maybe he'd be a bat flip guy. Maybe he'd show a little bit more enthusiasm. But I think fans would absolutely love him because he was a super exciting player, especially from like 82 to like 87, 88. I mean, later in his career, he became more of a power guy. But that MVP season he had, I mean, I know you know the numbers, but this is for the listeners. He had 19 home runs, 19 triples, batted about 319, 320, had, I think, over 50 doubles, stole over 50 bases. Imagine that stat line today. I think he had like an eight war, um, which is a Mike Trout season for everyone wondering. Like that was, that was a, and played fantastic defense up the middle would go first and third with the best of them. My dad used to always tell me about how much he loved Sandberg before he liked Sandberg when he got power, but he really loved him early in his career before he started hitting 30. And then, you know, he led the national league in 1990 with 40 home runs because he would take, and if you threw him an outside breaking ball, he weighted it back on it perfectly and drove it down the right field line for a triple. You came inside on him, he would blast into the left center field gap for a double. He was just that type of hitter that would drive pitchers mad because he had this amazing plate approach. He didn't draw a ton of walks because that just wasn't the game in the 80s. Um, fun fact for everybody, uh, Sarah, I just I had to do a dive. Sorry, I'm getting a little rambly right now, everyone listening. But with all the strikeouts going on in Major League Baseball, especially with our beloved Cubs, I was curious. I'm like, what were the teams like when I was? So I remember trying to think, what was the first year I remember watching baseball? And I think like, I mean, 89, I remember the Mitch Williams jumping over the dugout to celebrate, but I don't really remember watching every day. 90, 91. So I was curious. And I thought to myself growing up, Andre Dawson was a guy who struck out a lot. By today's comparison, not at all. He was about 14%. If you go, by the way, if I'm going to Fangraphs, which Sarah writes for, and we'll talk a little bit about that soon, which if you're a baseball fan, you're not stalking Fangraphs daily. You're doing it wrong as a fan. Uh, normally, I try not to tell people how to fan, even though I do get a little preachy on Twitter about being more positive. You got to, Fangraphs has got to be, you know, when I open up a new tab and it goes to my frequently checked websites, Fangraphs is always right there. But Sarah, Sandberg, struck out maybe 10% of the time that year. And for his career, maybe 12%. Mark Grace struck out like 7%, which is elite, elite, elite. Everyone talks about David Fletcher being like the guy that's the hardest to strike out. Grace, way past him. Even Sean Dunstan, who I remember as his high strikeout guy, was like 18%. It's insane how much the game has changed in those 30 years. And I think a lot of it was just people just swung so much earlier in the count. I think that's part of it. I also think that pitching has changed fundamentally. And yes, so yes. we have a lot more velocity and movement coming from pitchers. So hitting is harder, right? Like I think that, and, and frankly, like I think that hitting got even harder with the changes that they just made to the baseball, although there are lots of investigations um, looking at that. If, I, I think it was Ben Lindbergh and Rob Arthur had a piece in the ringer about the spring training ball. And what they found was that it was, getting more horizontal and vertical movement on pitches, which means that basically they made hitting more difficult because pitcher stuff is dirtier. Now they took like a Jacob deGrom pitch that was already functionally unhittable and they made it even more unhittable. Right. So I don't know what Sandberg could do against like 102. Um, I, I don't know what Sandberg could do against like, a 96 mile per hour slider that's like just a wipeout pitch, right? And none of us do because nobody was pitching like that in 1982, 1984. But I will tell you this, the shift would not have worked with those players in the early 80s, right? Like a Tony Gwynn was going to hit the ball wherever you were not, period. He knew how to do that. Ryan Sandberg knew how to do that. You couldn't shift that, right? 
And so there's a, there's a skill set there that I think that a lot of people would like to see back in the game now. And the ways that they're trying to force, well, force that is the wrong word, but the ways that they're trying to incentivize that by like changing the ball or by like all of these um, experiments they have going on in the minor leagues with larger bases and we're going to move the mound here and we're going to robot ups here and we're going to try this, that, and the other thing. Those are interesting ideas, but what you really need to do is just get back to the point where it's there's not an incentive to strike out, walk, or hit a home run. The three true outcomes incentive structure is the reason that you have, I mean, I was reading something maybe a month ago, not couldn't have been a month ago because we're still in the baseball season. So it must have been like a week ago. It feels like a month. Pandemic Everything time is feels different. like a month, right? Pan- <laughs> pandemic time is different. But um, Chris Towers from CBS looked at the K per nine over the last like 15 seasons for starting pitchers. And the first like 15 games in April was the first time that the K per nine for starting pitchers was over nine for the league, like as a league average. So the average pitcher is like striking out at least a batter an inning and part of that is hitters but part of that is the stuff that pitchers are throwing to yeah i mean it's it's tough to i think a lot of it is the stuff you're right the pitching has gotten a lot better there's been talks of do you move the mound back do you lower it and baseball's done this before so for the diehard baseball historians who fear any kind of little change in 1968, pitching was so dominant that they lowered the mound the next season. There was a, the unbelievable pitching in the throughout the whole 60s with Koufax, Drysdale, Bob Gibson, Juan Marichal, and and that those guys were throwing nine innings too. I think the specialist of you know I was joking with some friends the other day because I, I said someone corrected me. I said Arietta's had a quality start every start for the Cubs, and someone's like, well, he went five innings twice. And I'm like. Yeah, but five innings, one run in today's game is a quality start. You don't have to go six anymore. People rarely go six. Uh, I think there have been pitchers, even in the 80s, who threw in the upper 90s because Nolan Ryan clearly must have because I remember watching him throw 94 when he was 46 in 1993. The difference now, though, is there are more pitchers who throw that. It used to be, you know, at any given point, there was guys who threw high, high 90s, but you could count them on two hands. How many? Now there are teams with you could count on two hands who throw high nineties, except the Cubs, unfortunately. We maybe have four guys. Although, Trevor I McGill mean, and I was just gonna say Trevor McGill comes up like first start. I'm like, where is this guy been? He's throwing 98, 99, painting the corners. And I'm just like, I so that's just it's it's bananas to me that like the guy that you just call up from Iowa throws ninety-nine, like just off the cuff. Well, the Cubs did learn their lesson, though, because they did have a dip in velocity there. Although the bullpen last year ended up being pretty good. And the bullpen, you know what the bullpen's doing now that's killing me? I guess we'll talk a little bit of Cubs right now before we get into a bigger part of Cubs right now, of the current day Cubs a little later. Is that um, every bullpen pitcher who had been good is taking their turn blowing a game. Like Andrew Chafin had been great, and then he comes in on Saturday and blows a game. Um Jason Adam, I feel like Jason Adam, for some reason, people think he's bad. He's been mostly good. He blows a game. So it's been this frustration thing. But you're right. Overall, we don't have the a lot of bullpens have like guy after guy after guy. Like I feel like Tampa and L.A. last year, every guy they brought into the World Series was throwing 97 and above. Well, the Cubs have a bullpen problem in the sense that they've thrown more bullpen innings than any other team in the majors at this point. Well, yeah, and that's so, the starting problem too, I guess. Yeah. So, so part of that is that the bullpen's getting a ton of use. and. Look, 
they have the shirts that say failed starter and that's kind of a funny joke but that is true like yeah. a lot of guys who are out in that bullpen are there because they only have one or two pitches that works they're not quite as good with their stuff in command as starting pitchers they would be starters if they were able to do that right like yeah. you don't with the with the rare exception of like a kenley jansen who discovered he could throw a cutter after years of being a position player, most relievers are out there because at some point in time, they realized they couldn't be a starter. And so they started focusing on ways to be super efficient for an inning or two. And so by definition, those players are not going to succeed as often <laughs> as yeah. some other players, right? They're going to have bad innings. And we've seen it from Chafin a couple of times now. We've seen, we saw a real bad inning from Adam. Um, the guy who I actually was kind of impressed with, uh, the other day, even though the Cubs didn't get the win, was Dylan Maples, who actually seems to have learned how to show up in a big spot. And if that's true, that man throws a wiffle ball. So <laughs> good luck hitting he, that if he knows how to control it. Yeah, he threw, he could hit 97, too. I've seen him get up around that range. And so it feels like the Cubs have learned that lesson because they did draft a lot of high velo guys that should be coming through the next couple of years or so. I mean, Braylon Marquez, I think we're all very excited about. And, and the thing with pitching, too, if you're throwing 100 and you have control, there's no sense in keeping you down. It's not like hitting. If you throw 100 in double A, that 100 will play at any level. Yeah. It's, you know, it's not like a guy who tears up double A offensively and you got to go, all right, let's see. Let's hold on. You know, I don't remember who did this video. Part of me wants to say it was a pitching ninja video, but it probably wasn't just because that's what's sticking in my mind right now. But there's a video that shows every 100 mile per hour pitch that was thrown in the shortened season in 2020. And what the result was and that it's just really hard to square up right like there's a lot of pop-ups there's a lot of foul balls there's a lot of swing and miss it's it's like yes every now and again a jazz chisel like connects on a hundred mile power pitch with the ground and like perks at the upper deck but that's a rarity most of the outcomes that happen off a hundred mile power ball are not good <laughs> for the hitter yeah you're 100 right and that's why every now and then we think where it's like i remember in the world series Jock Peterson took 99. It was a high 99 and, and hit a home run. And that sticks out in our heads. Cause I remember when we got Jock thinking, oh man, his player profile is very similar to Schwarber. I don't really get this move very much. Um, you know, saving I, I just, million dollars. Yeah, it was he was he was cheap, I guess. You save some money. Um, and then you hope to flip him, I guess, that that's the the short term uh idea. Or you think, hey, maybe he goes because he had a really solid 2019 where he had like 36 home runs and like a three and a half war. But it's still, it's one of those things where when people do connect with 99 and 100, yeah, it's going to go a long way, but it's so rare. But when they connect, it sticks on your brain. You're like, I saw him hit 99 out of the park once. I'm like, yeah, once, <laughs> once they did that, you know, you got to remind yourself. Um, all right. We're going through now. Grew up 84 Cubs sucked you in WGN baseball. Sandberg was your favorite. Do you now, do you remember the first time you went to Wrigley Field and what that was like? Yeah, I my first work trip was a trip to Chicago in 2002. I was working at a research organization like right out of college. And I was doing a paper on education choice, like charter schools, vouchers, that type of stuff um, for an organization called Utah Foundation. And so I flew into Chicago. I was like, I don't know. I was barely old enough to drink. <laughs> I The first thing I flew in a half a day early so I could watch the Cubs um, play the Braves. And that Cubs team was not particularly great, but they did win that game on a Sammy Sosa home run. And it was like the greatest experience of my life. I bought myself like at the time it felt expensive. I bought myself like a ticket right by where the bullpens used to be at the home bullpen there on the third baseline. And I I was just in heaven. Um, And I didn't get back to Wrigley again 
for a decade uh, until I came back to Chicago for a different work trip. And now you frequent the friendly confines regularly, All the time. I imagine. Anytime I can, actually. I remember right after I moved to Chicago, it was 2014, and the Cubs were not very good, but I happened to have an, an appointment up on Southport, and I realized how close I was to the field, and I was just like, I wonder if there's a single game ticket. Like, if I just walked up to the window and bought a ticket, what would happen? And there was, and I did, and I was like, well, this is great. I can just, like, walk to the Cubs game and watch it here instead of being on my couch. It's outstanding. Now, when you went in 02, was, were the tickets hard to come by? No, it was pretty easy, actually. But there wasn't, like, StubHub and stuff. So if I recall correctly, I was on, like, some message board. And it might have even been a connection through Bleed Cubby Blue, because I don't remember exactly what year that website started. But it was around that same time that the Internet communities were getting started and people would, like, have game threads and stuff like that. And I, I really remember just, like, throwing it out into the universe. Like, I'm going to Chicago. I would like to buy a single ticket. Here's how much I'm willing to spend. <laughs> and that's how I got my first ticket to test. I had to ask because O2 was of course before O3. And I, I tell people who are new Cubs fans or new to Chicago over the last like decade or so that it was before O3. I mean, maybe a July, August might be a little tough to get a ticket, but you could pretty much walk up to Wrigley field day of the game and get a seat. O3 coupled in with the rise of Sammy Sosa and Kerry Wood. Like Kerry Wood starts after after he struck out 20 and 98, his every one of his starts was sold out. People were just you couldn't get a seat. But 98 was interesting because or no, it was 97. I um was 13 and on my 13th birthday, my dad said, I'll give you some cash and you and your friends could take the bus and go to a Cubs game by yourselves. Which is like a big deal as a 13-year-old kid yeah. being a diehard Cubs fan. And I grew up off of Irving, but we just walked like the six blocks down to Addison, took the Addison bus. And for $24 total, we got four bleacher tickets. They were six bucks each in 1997. Very, very year, the next year, Sammy Sosa hit 66 and bleacher tickets skyrocketed. And then it became more difficult. And then after 03, they just became such a very difficult ticket to get. The bleacher ticket pricing thing is, is one of those things that I find amazing about the Cubs because, you know, I kind of like will sit wherever. I love sitting in the bleachers, but if I'm just getting a single for myself and I want like the cover of the grandstand. I really like the 200s, like sort of like right, right at like row five or six. So you don't have to worry about the poles, but you got the cover in case it rains. And it's just a nice little, just a nice little area to watch a game. But I'm always, I always find it humorous that bleacher tickets are about three times more than what you would pay to sit in that 200 part of the grandstand. And that is, I, that's unique to Wrigley Field. That's not true. Like I lived in Boston for seven years. Like, that's not true at Fenway. If you want to sit in the outfield at Fenway, it's cheaper than sitting <laughs> anywhere. Yankee uh, Stadium. Um, Same with the Wrigley, Yankee Stadium. Yeah. Yeah. You're paying, you're paying a premium for that bleacher experience. Yeah. Wrigley just had that whole idea with, you know, WGN TV, Arnie Harris, always finding whatever woman was in a bikini top and just the drinking and everyone, you know, holding up signs, chanting right field sucks, left field sucks. And then the famous bleacher bumps play. Yeah. So everything about that, you're right, is very unique to Wrigley because I've been to, you know, maybe 15, 20 ballparks and 
the you're right the outfield where you in my because in my brain I'm like you could catch a home run there that should be more expensive seat and everyone else is like yeah just it's not that special to us we don't really care I'm like all right I guess that really is a very unique to Chicago and Wrigley experience I like where you're talking about though in the 200s about the fifth row so you can still see the scoreboard because if you're too far back in the 200s yeah. you can't see the scoreboard and that's a bummer to me because. When you walk up those steps, and you must have had that in 2002, when you walked up and the field revealed itself, seeing that big green scoreboard, it's it's pretty magical. So I always want to see that. Um, Bleachers can be very overrated, though, because you get a lot of people who aren't true fans. And, you know, some people who took the Metro in and they're a little sauced up before the game begins. And it's a little distracting sometimes. And... You know, I'm not knocking the bleachers. We got good friends who loves the bleachers. Shout out Bleacher Jeff and, and other people and my tie guy. But yeah, I'm with you. I kind of like the 200s or even the 300s now was the 400s. Um, those are my spots. Yeah, the 300s are great too if you're low enough and you can just kind of get an awesome like bird's eye view of the whole action. I like the bleachers like on social media night when we have our whole crew there, right? Like if we're hanging out with the Bleacher Nation people and like Danny's there and Andy came up from like St. Louis. Andy co-hosts a podcast with me. She's my podcast partner in crime on Cup of Cubby Blue, if you're ever interested in that. Um, but like if, if that's the vibe, the bleachers are great, right? But for a single ticket, like I'm going to keep score and just sit there and watch the game. I, I'm perfectly happy watching a game by myself. I've been doing it my whole life and watching a game by myself at Wrigley is as good or better than doing it on my couch. So that's fine. Um, the 200s is where it's at for me. And there are actually a handful of, weird quirky single seats in the 200 section have you seen these there's like three three different sections one on each side where there's like the like three singles that line that 200 section and those seats are great because there's nobody on either side of you you're just like right there you have a perfect view of the action you don't have to worry about anything yeah that is pretty sweet i i, I just love wrigley with all its little crooks and crannies and all that kind of stuff you know everyone's got such a cool wrigley story all right let's slide in well let me ask you real quickly um this this is the first really hot day in Chicago, so I think my wife, who's upstairs, put the AC on. Did you hear the air conditioner kick on? I did not. You did not. All right, good. I just I'm paranoid about it, so I had to ask you. <laughs> That's good that you didn't hear it on. That means the microphone is doing what it's supposed to do and only picking up my voice. Beautiful. All right, everybody, you had to get a little behind the scenes right there. Wilson Contreras, we already talked about your absolute favorite player. Um, between Samberg and Wilson, was there a middle? Who was that like in the late 90s, 2000s? Who was your guy to gap those two great players? So I have a couple. Um, the first jersey I ever got, and props to my brother for getting me this Christmas present because it was great, was a Giovanni Soto jersey. Clearly I had a Soto. Have, I had the blue. I clearly have a thing for catchers and second basemen. Um, the other one was Mark DeRosa. I really loved Mark DeRosa. I thought that he was an awesome player, really great clubhouse presence. You could kind of tell that he was like one of those guys who kept the team together, kind of like a glue guy type of person. Uh, I was super bummed when he went to the Cardinals. I was like, how do you do that? (laughs) Well, I was bummed when we traded him to Cleveland. I think that was such an overreaction. I know we, the Cubs got swept in 07 and 08 playoffs and they wanted to diversify the lineup a little bit because it was so right-handed heavy. And I remember just being a little bit annoyed by that because I thought DeRosa was just such a glue player to that team. He could play second. He could play outfield. That was my thing, too. I'm like, can we just find, you know, give him some corner outfield time? Um, A lot of Cubs fans will hate me for saying this, but at the time, I thought Derek Lee should have been the guy they traded and then moved DeRosa to first base, mainly because Derek Lee, remember he had that season where he ground into like 30 double plays and he just, his power had kind of disappeared. I think he only hit like 20 home runs in 2008. Um, he ended up bouncing back, and I love Derek Lee. You know, he's such a great oh, player. Yeah. 
But at that moment, I remember going like, that's the guy they should move because DeRosa just seemed to really uh, big hits when you needed to a really good plate approach. That whole team had a really high on base percentage. I mean, I remember Soto had like a 390 in 08 and even in 2010, because remember he had a great he had rookie of the year, bad sophomore season. And then 2010, he came back. And when he came back in 2010, that's when I got his jersey because I'm like, I think I'd like him long term. And then it didn't work out. I was so convinced that Soto was going to be the Cubs catcher for like 15 years, that he was going to be one of those players that was going to be like a franchise guy. And it just didn't happen. And maybe, well, I don't know that Wilson's going to be a franchise guy either with the way the Ricketts are dealing with their pocketbook these days. But Wilson is like what I thought Soto would be in those early days where he's, you know, awesome hitting catcher, just constantly improving, clearly like a huge part of the team in terms of game planning perspective. You know, one of my favorite Wilson Contreras moments has had almost nothing to do with something he did like actively with a home run or anything in the game. Do you remember when Chatwood was really struggling and he like got sent to the bullpen for the first time and he comes in in a big spot in his first like relief appearance, like the ninth inning or whatever. And he gets the Cubs out of a jam, right? And it's not like a safe situation because they don't trust him that much at that point in time, but he gets three outs coming in out of the bullpen. And the first person to the mound to congratulate him is Wilson. They have this like little throw hug on the mound. And I was just like, that, that is what you want from your catcher. Like the guy who clearly understands what this moment is and like how hard that was for Chatwood. And he's out there immediately to make it okay. And I was just like, I love that. I love stuff like that. I 100% am on board with that. I love what Wilson Contreras brings to the table. Him doing that, and he does that in a lot of moments too, that kind of goes under the radar because he's such a passionate guy. But I'll see it when a pitcher's in a jam and he gets that big strikeout. You see him walking off like pumped up, looking at him like just jacked up, all excited. I like that because I know it gets your team going. I used to umpire Little League games when I was like a teenager. And whenever it was like a pitcher was like starting to deal. That's when I'd be more emphatic with my strikeout call. I would do the big strike three, you know, and I knew that would get the pitcher pumped up because not that I was rooting for either team I'm umpiring. Do you know what a 16 year old umpire is rooting for speed of game? Let's get this going. You guys are 10 years old and I've got a date. I'm 16. You know, let's, (laughs) let's hurry it along. And I think that's what he kind of sees. He knows when to get his teammates pumped up. And I love players like that. I love that. He brings to that table. I love that. Javi brings that to the table. But sadly, if I'm looking to extend either of those guys, it's Wilson by far. We all love Javi, um, and I'm hoping he turns it around desperately. But, you know, present day, there's just no way I would extend him over Wilson or over Bryant or Rizzo for that matter. So let's slide into that. We can talk a little bit about present day now. Uh, Wilson Contreras, especially, you just told me why you love the guy. You, You have a thing for catchers we've established. But there's something you said that I think needs to be emphasized a lot when talking about Wilson Contreras. It's that he seems to improve every single year. Um, you know what I mean? Like whether it's at the, at the, you know, at the plate, he's been hitting better. His batting eye gets a little better. He doesn't really give away at bats. He never really did too much. He kind of always came in with a pretty good idea. Uh, blocking pitches in the dirt was an issue. Got better at that. The arm has always been there. Accuracy gets a little bit better. The pitch framing was an issue. Partly, I thought it was a little overblown, but he became elite at that last year. Uh, this year, I think it's mixed results so far, but I still I like what he's been doing behind the plate. Um, the only thing I want to see him improve on now is his base running, because there are times where I'm like, Wilson, buddy, I don't want to teach that out of you. I don't want to teach the aggressiveness out of you, but come on, man. Know your speed. 
He thinks he's faster than he is. Uh, yes. In fairness to him, I was looking this up earlier today for something else. He is in the 73rd percentile of all MLB for sprint speed, which for a catcher is ridiculous, right? Like he's probably, I, I don't know that he's the fastest catcher in the league. I haven't done a comparison on all of the catchers, but that's got to be up there for catchers. But I agree with you. He he has a tendency to think that he can do hobby things on the base paths. And he's just like a tiny bit short of being able to do hobby things on the base paths. And he should stop trying to do that. <laughs> well, I think his speed is that he goes first to third very well. But what he doesn't do well is go batter's box to second base when he should clearly stay at first or running um, from second to third when the ball was hit to the shortstop. He, he hasn't done that in a while, but that was one that really stuck on my mind that he did in the 2019 season where I was like, you didn't need advance. What are you doing? You know, but it's one of those things where I know Madden had said it. And I think Ross has even alluded to it where it's like he does. You just you love the aggressiveness so much that it's a hard thing to coach out of him. And you just hope as he matures we forget he's still like 29 that he just kind of as he gets older they're thinking he makes less and less of those mistakes um i think he's a building block too i actually have a fantasy we could this is how we could talk about the current team um as we all know they're 10 and 12 right now everyone listening so uh sarah being a fan graphs writer and we'll, let's talk about that very quickly and then we can talk about the current team uh, tell everyone about Fangraphs, uh, how that came about, and your articles for them thus far. Well, it's it's still pretty new, so I've only had a couple of pieces up. Uh, officially started in April here with the season, so um, they put out a call over the winter for contributing writers part time, and uh, I can do that in addition to the coverage that I do at Bleed Cubby Blue. And I, I wanted to branch out a little bit. Like there are some national stories I really want to cover. And I don't always have an outlet for that at BCBL. Although shout out to Al Yellen, who I know that some people like give a hard time or whatever. Al has always been so great at letting me write what I want to write about and putting it out into the universe and being supportive of that. And I really am appreciative of that platform and that he does that, right? Like that he lets me, you know, cover some things differently than I think they get covered in the sports world. Um, sometimes. So really grateful for that opportunity and definitely going to continue writing at BCB too. Um, the pieces I've written for Fangraph so far, both have actually had a tangential Cubs um, element to them, although I didn't do that on purpose. <laughs> the first kind of looked at Nicholas Cassianos's hot start with the Cincinnati Reds when he was, I mean, he was just on fire at the start of the season, um, even though he got suspended for playing the game the fun way. And yeah. <laughs> why he got suspended and Yachty didn't like I'm still furious about this because as far as I can tell Nick Castellanos just had fun and Yachty Molina actually was the one that grabbed him by the neck and pulled him into this like scrum but somehow Castellanos gets suspended and Yachty doesn't for hashtag reasons Joe Torrey should not be the only person making these decisions and whatever MLB office he has like that is obviously ridiculous um, and then I wrote a piece about what it was like to go back to Wrigley and I, um, you know, a lot of that was informational, but some of it was just personal, like what it was like to see the field again and what it was like to deal with. Like, I was really nervous that pandemic baseball was not going to feel the same because uh, it's been a whole year, right, where we've all been dealing with being alone, wearing masks, being scared of everything. Like, I, I kind of have a little bit of anxiety anyway, just like lately as a person. And so packing a pandemic and like actual anxious situation on top of that has been a real, like, it's it's been huge. Like, it's been really hard to wrap my head around. Um, and I was worried that being in, like, a 
25% capacity ballpark with all these restrictions and rules and lines. And you can't walk around the concourse the way you used to. Like you used to be able to walk from one end of the park to the other and it didn't matter what your gate was. You can't do that anymore. They like scan you into different zones and stuff. I was worried it was going to feel like a shell of baseball and it doesn't. It feels beautiful and like a re- it feels like a resurgence of baseball. Um, it feels like baseball is coming back and we will have this thing again. We just have to be a little patient. I agree 100%. It was definitely, it, it, you know, it wasn't 100% the same, but there was also a small part of me that it's like, I could get used to 10,000 people again. That's kind of nice. There's no lines. I'm in out of the bathroom. This is pretty good. You know, you're, no one's right on top of you. There's less people where you're like, shut up, you idiot, yelling two <laughs> rows over from me. You know, like I remember going to games where, this one guy, I think it was Jason Dubois. This always stuck out to me. He hit a blooper that landed, and he actually did get to second. So he got to du- he got a bloop double. And there was this idiot a row over being like, he should be at third, screaming. And I'm like, have you ever seen this guy play? I can't believe he made it to second, and he did run out of the box. It was just like, I don't know if other fans feel that way, but every now and then there's just someone who makes my skin crawl. And I feel like there's less of a chance of that with only 25% capacity. That's definitely true. The ones that I always notice, um, and Andy will remember this, we were at uh, Hispanic Heritage Day at Wrigley, and so we had our Los Cubs hats, which Crawley got us. Shout out to Crawley, man. Like, Crawley knows Great everybody. dude. I got to shout him out, too. He got he my, exactly. my, the last ticket he paid for. Yeah, he's great. Um, so we're sitting there with our Los Cubs hats, and we're, like, having a great time. And, and Andy and I, you know, like, a couple of girls at a baseball game, but we know our stuff, right? Like, Andy played softball in college, and... I write about baseball and have written about baseball half my life, really. I started when I was a teenager writing about my brother's Little League games because the local paper wouldn't cover them. Oh, that's Um, cool. It was pretty ridiculous, actually. Um, The guy right behind us is mansplaining all of baseball to the woman who's with him, and he's wrong about everything. He's wrong about the shift. He's wrong about what the pitches are. He's wrong about the pitch makeup that this particular pitcher has. And it's like everything in mine and Andy's power. I <laughs> just turn around and be like, he's telling you the wrong things about absolutely everything. And of course they left in the sixth inning because they were those types of fans. And Andy and I were just like, oh my God, we can't even with this guy. You know, there's no winning either. If, if you would have interrupted to be like, hey, actually, you know, he would have just doubled down on him being wrong. And that's just, you know, the typical loud mouth in a bar, but then they're at a ballpark and or a concert or anywhere. You, you encounter those people everywhere. My favorite story about this, actually, uh, game seven of the World Series, I'm at Bernie's. Lester comes in in a dirty inning. He's not supposed to be in the game in a dirty inning because he's John Lester and he can't throw to first. And so I out loud just to the universe because I'm not there with anyone to say, what is Lester doing coming in right now? And the dude next to me, honest to God, turns and looks at me and says, oh, well, it's game seven. There's no baseball tomorrow. So they don't need to worry about Lester coming in out of the bullpen. And I was just like, did you actually just mansplain John Lester coming into game seven to me? Because I know that. And I also know he can't throw to first and there's a runner on first. And I don't know what he's doing in the game right now. <laughs> I'd been like, oh, really? Oh, really? Dipshit. Is there no game? Is there no baseball tomorrow? There's no game eight. We stopped doing a game eight. What happened? I would have played right into him. But you, you're uh, a better person than me. <laughs> I was just stunned. I was like, I can't believe anybody would do this. <laughs> but it happened. Yeah, you know, that's that's why I remind myself about Twitter a lot. I actually go back and forth with Twitter and stuff like that with how much I enjoy it versus, you know, because when, when your baseball team's off to a bad start, Twitter could be an ugly place. Um, 
And then I remind myself, it's people just wearing their emotions on their sleeve and all that. And unfortunately, Twitter allows anybody to say anything. I've found that as long as I don't read replies, I'm pretty good. And I think that's good advice to people on every platform. Don't read the replies because usually it's someone makes a statement. You're like, okay, I click on the replies. I'm like, oh, everyone underneath is really stupid. I heard one person say something like, they're talking about the Davies U Darvish trade, which people have plenty to gripe about. They do plenty. Um, is they go, we traded U Darvish, a Cy Young contender, for a left-handed version of Hendricks, which by the way, Dick Davies, not left-handed. Um, <laughs> and then he goes, and for four teenagers who will never make the, the show. And what killed me about that was like, you don't know that about the four teenagers. You, I mean, there's a chance but you don't understand. And then later they went back and forth being like, they brought up Glebar Torres. And I was like, you know, Glebar Torres wasn't a top 100 prospect when we traded him, you know, like, so I'm just saying that an 18 year old and 17 year olds we have now could maybe make a top 100 list two years from now. I still, if you're a fan out there and you're still mad about that trade, I get it. I, I wanted more major league ready talent too, than four lottery picks um, or lottery tickets. I should say. I'm just saying, though, that there, I got to stop reading the replies because there are so many people who don't know what they're saying and they're confident while saying it. Well, that trade. OK, so I admit that I wrote like a I, I wrote a screed. That's what I'll call it. I believe I called it a fire sale on BCB when that when that trade happened. Um, and, and I still stand by that. It, but obviously a little bit differently than what you're talking about, because I think that people look, there's a reason you make that trade. You Darvish's value is never going to be higher. You're looking 35. to get some money off the books. He's older. He's got a lot of pitches on his arm. If you wait another year, it's highly possible you don't get anything. And, and this is the thing that I think people forget about a lot. There is this looming uh, collective bargaining agreement that is going to happen for 2022. And the owners and players are not exactly friends right now. Like if you saw all of the stuff that was happening in the run-up to the pandemic where they were trying to negotiate the shortened season and they almost couldn't get that done. That was a miniaturized version of what is going to happen in the off season after the world series in 2021. And so is it possible that they like get a great deal done? Yes, it's possible. I mean, Jeff Passan just reported that the first talks were like totally cordial or whatever. And that's great. Like there was, there were no leaks of like terrible things that people were saying um, back and forth about each other. Maybe that will continue. That would be great. I don't think that's going to happen. I think there's some real grievances that players have about service time, about how free agency works, about teams tanking, about the percentage of revenues that they get back from the gate. You know, those have been falling for like seven years now. For seven years in a row, the players have taken in less of the haul that MLB has than they should than they had proportionally, right? So if they used to get 52%, now they get like 48%. And that all of those things bubble up to where if you're a Jed Hoyer and the Cubs window looks like it's going to close right around 2021, 2022, and you're not even sure there's going to be a 2022 season, you, you trade Darvish and Caratini now or you don't trade them at all, right? It's yeah. part of why I think this team needs to have like a pretty decent sized winning streak and get themselves a five or six game lead in the division or else they're just going to trade what they can at the trade deadline. Because it's now or never. You're looking at the possibility of like trade now or get nothing for Anthony Rizzo when he becomes a free agent. Get nothing for Chris Bryant when he becomes a free agent. And that's not a pretty picture. Like, I don't want to see any of these guys traded either. But that's where we are. That's the reality of the Cubs window and the reality 
of the business side. Now the Darvish Caratini for Davies and teenagers thing specifically, the problem with that is that the teenagers hints that they don't think the window reopens until like 2024. That's the part that sort of sticks with me. It's like, you want talent that's gonna help you with your next team that's gonna win. And if the oldest player you get in this deal is 20, 19 in instructional ball, like that means your window is in four years. Your window is not 2022 or 2023. Yes and no, depending on what they do though, because I hear so many, I've been going at, going at it with like friends of mine in text threads where it's their whole thing is they're not going to be able to compete for a long time. So what's the point? And in my head, I'm like, what do you mean? Cause I, I'm on the extend Bryant, extend Contreras, extend Rizzo, right? I'm not in the extend bias camp. It's sad as it is. Cause I, I love that guy. We'll always love that guy. I'm just, no. Um, and, and you know, I joked about, Hey, it's nice at 25% capacity. I want it to be 100% capacity again. That way ownership has no excuses for not spending. The Cubs only have about 50 million in guaranteed payroll next year. Obviously, there's some arbitration players you're keeping around and all that, but they're going to be so far under the cap. They could spend 80 million in new contracts and still be under the luxury tax. And plus, they're under the luxury tax this year, so it resets. Other than the the you know the whole a strike possibly looming. I don't really see any excuse for them not to spend because like I, like I said before, it's not like in 2012 when Theo's first year taking over when they had aging bad con like who's their guy Soriano, Marlon bird. I mean, these, these were guys with no value. The Cubs this year in 2021, which is why I thought they made a Jock Peterson signing and why they were like, yeah, we'll take Davies back and you know, blah, 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 blah is because they can do like kind of what the Yankees did in 2016 which is we could trade Craig Kimbrell. If he keeps pitching like this, right. you could get a top 50 prospect for a closer that's dealing the way he's been dealing. Uh, Bryant, you could get a few things for. I actually have this wild notion. It's maybe me dreaming out loud. If we're not there, if we're below 500 and it looks like, hey, the wild card's a long shot and the division's a long shot, trade Chris Bryant and then buy him back in the yeah. offseason. That that's what, what a big market team that's trying to play 3D chess would do. They would do a, a sick move like that. Uh, Rizzo, I don't even want traded because I don't even know what the, the uh, what the market would be for a first baseman right now is anyway because all the good teams competing have good first basemen as is. Um, and I don't. I just. I'd rather they extend him now. I don't understand why they can't just do this in an off day. I know he doesn't want to talk about during the season, but come on, next Monday off, just say to him five years, ninety. You know you want it. Let's do it right. I want them to extend Anthony Rizzo more than anything. I think he has earned the right to to be a Cub for life, and he should get a statue. Like 40 years from now, when we're old, we should be able to come to Rizzo's statue unveiling somewhere next Agreed. to like Fergie's statue, which is finally going to be up, uh, which is going to be outstanding. But I see this is where I worry that the Cubs have tried to be too clever by half because the offer that they made Rizzo was so insulting that he just cut off, right? Like. And I get that they need to start low so that he can counter and this, that, and the other thing. And some of it's posturing and maybe they're still having conversations off on the side or whatever. I hope that's true. But you cannot look at your all-star, multiple gold glove, he also has a platinum glove, like first baseman who took a team-friendly deal to get you to the promised land of the World Series and say, hey, we'd like you to take a cut in pay and stay with us for five years. That was insulting. And he was right to be insulted. 
Yeah. Right. right? Andy gave Ricketts the the final out baseball. You know, that's just he, he's done everything. He's a guy that I overpay because even if you're giving him too much money, he's probably going to spend that money better than most government agencies because I'm a pretty progressive guy because he gives back. So he does such great work at children's hospitals across yeah. Chicago um, and for cancer research and all that stuff. I've been fortunate enough. I know I'm probably dropped this knowledge on every podcast to have performed in Anthony Rizzo's laugh off for cancer events. And they show a video for what the Anthony Rizzo foundation does and the impact it has on people with cancer. It ball your eyes out. It is such a tearjerker thing. And it's one of those things where it's like, give them all the money. I don't care. I don't care if it, it puts us in a hole financially and all that kind of stuff, which it shouldn't. Cause again, the highest ticket prices in baseball, um, and, and Jed did say that, Hey, maybe this, these four prospects we got back from you will be used in other deals or they'll be part of another wave. Or I don't know. I don't really know why they went with teenagers and not some higher up prospects. Part of me looked at the timing of that deal and thought, and again, everyone, this is speculation that the Ricketts said, Hey, get this contract off the books before 2021 starts. Cause I don't want it for tax reasons or whatever billionaire rich guy reasons they do things for. And that's why that, that, cause that trade was done December 28th. It was done just before new year's Eve. And, and maybe that's the best deal they could have got where they, a team takes on the most money, you know, because the other big market teams didn't want to go over the luxury tax, uh, this upcoming year, which is why you saw some teams not even picking up easy options. I mean, the Cardinals didn't pick up Wong's 11 million or $12 million option, which was yeah. so bizarre. The Indians not picking up Brad hand early in the off season. It looked like, wow, people aren't going to sign anyone. And then things started to pick up once they kind of got the idea. Oh, we'll have some fans back. And then you saw some players getting some solid contracts. I thought six years, one fifty was pretty good for George Springer being 31. And you know, there's some other deals here or there where I'm like, all right, that's pretty good. And then of course we saw Lindor get a big contract extension, which he deserves. So, I mean, Maybe I'm I'm optimistic that with the pandemic losses, ownership will then say, ah, it's in our best interest for the game to just do whatever we can to avoid a strike in 2022. And the Cubs are interesting in that regard because, like I said before, this isn't like 2012. Brennan Davis, I think, is going to be a major league ready player in 2022. Uh, Braylon Marquez will probably be up sometime in 2022, as long as the controls there, as we mentioned, Nico Horner is looking like a guy you can pencil in your great. lineup, right? There's just, uh, there's a few guys. And then we've got some other arms that are very interesting that are coming through the ranks. I think the farm system, it, I mean, it's not a top 15 farm system yet or anything like that. I think the best I saw was like 22nd or something like that going into this year, um, depending on who you read, but I wouldn't be surprised if at year's end, they're getting closer to being in the top half. And like I said before, you got your trade chips. That's why it's so important for Davies to turn it around. Because if this is going to be a season that we're punting, which is sad to do, um, you want to give as many prospects back for all these guys as you can. But I definitely think as a smart team, you build around Contreras, Bryant, Rizzo, and there's some free agents out there you could supplement with. Uh, again, you got Nico coming up soon. You got Brendan Davis waiting in the wings. Hey, maybe Castiano sops out. You know, we know he loves Chicago. There's just there's money to be spent to make this a good team without going crazy and being into the 200 millions or whatever. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, Contreras is a player I would sign. I would probably do the Rizzo deal first, like whatever that needs to be, get that done. Five, six years, whatever you need to do, get the Rizzo deal done. Um, Contreras is a really affordable player, in my opinion, and a player who you, you know, you were talking about it earlier, how he just keeps getting better. 
Uh, Jim Deshays actually told my favorite Wilson Contreras story on the air yesterday during the Braves game. Carrie Musket wrote this up in like 2017, and I, it just stuck with me ever since. How when he was signed, you know, he goes to the tryout in Venezuela. He was 16. It was an international free agent signing. And he's playing all over the field. They give him a contract because he looks great. And the next day, they see him 200 miles away at the next showcase that they're doing because they're doing showcases all week. They're like, you don't need to be here. You've already got a contract. He's like, it's okay. I just want to work out. So he works out with them that day. And then the next day, 200 miles away, Wilson shows up again. And they're like, you have a contract. You don't need to be here. He's like, yeah, I just want to play. And he literally shows up every day all over the country just so he can do the workouts with these guys. And it's it's a, an incredible story because if you think about it, Wilson was on nobody's top 100 anything. Yeah. In 2015, the Cubs had him exposed in the Rule 5 draft. Any any team in baseball could have picked up Wilson Contreras, given him a job in 2015, kept him on their major league roster, and he would have been theirs for nothing. And nobody did that. 2016, he wasn't even supposed to be part of the equation. It wasn't until Kyle Schwarber ran into Dexter Fowler and tore his knee up that they were like, oh, we're going to have to bring up this kid in July, and we have no idea what, or June, I guess, because he was his Father's Day when he had his first home run. Um, and they're like, I, we don't know what's going to happen. And, and he never went back. He didn't have to, he didn't get sent back to AAA like half. He didn't get sent back to AAA like Schwarber. He just never Javi. went back. He, he was here and he was ready to go. And he improved everything he needed to improve. So now that I think about it, only Wilson and Chris Bryant are the two players that didn't get sent back down because Ever. Rizzo got sent back down with San Diego. And we know Javi, of course, and happened Schwarber and Nico, um, maybe unfairly to Nico though, because he got brought up before he was ready out of desperation. Yeah. Nico, Javi that's not hurt. Nico's fault. Um, but you know, I look at Contreras, you look at the Salvador Perez deal, four years, $82 million. Salvador Perez is one year older than Wilson Contreras. Give Wilson an extra year, give him the same AAV. Do it now. <laughs> like, I agree. Why, I, I why mean, wouldn't you do that? They 100% should. And then when you lock up Wilson Contreras, Miguel Amaya becomes a trade chip. And I like Miguel Amaya, and I think he's got a good future ahead of him. But if we're going to lock up Wilson Contreras for five years, you might as well sell high on Amaya. Where Carantini, they probably could have sold higher on before they really brought him up. He was a guy who had 340 for AAA Iowa, I think the year they brought him up as a backup. And typically, you don't, you know, a stud guy like that, you go out and you get something for backups are veterans. That's like a guy who's been in the league for eight or nine years, a Kurt Suzuki type or Austin Romine. I would have liked to have gone a little bit higher than him for our backup catcher. But I think, and that's why things are still interesting. That's why I don't want people, I don't want Cubs fans accepting the idea that, well, the window's closed, time to blow it all up. There's no reason to do that. You, you talked about the Braves earlier. The Braves went to the playoffs 14 years in a row. Was it the same team all 14 years? No, of course not. You you kind of reconfigure as you go. You go, all right, well, this player is kind of losing it a little bit. We got this guy coming up, or we make a trade for that person. And you know, you just kind of do that. You there's no re reset is a fine word. I just don't like this idea of the rebuild because it makes people think that rebuilding is easy, which we know it's not. I don't care how easy they made it look previously, it is not. You could do a lot of things right in rebuilds and still not win. The White Sox, I feel, have done a great job rebuilding. There's still no guarantee they win a World Series. The Detroit Tigers a decade and a half ago in like 05 when they had Verlander and all those other stud pitchers, they did a lot of things right, never won. The Rangers went to back-to-back -back World Series, didn't win. The Mets who swept us in 2015, everyone was raving about being the next big thing. Haven't sniffed the playoffs since. So 
fans out there listening, this isn't really for you, Sarah, because you know all this. I'm talking to them listening. Don't don't accept that. Don't just let them do that. Don't let them have a $75 million payroll next year because they think they had to go young for whatever reason. They don't. And I really, I'm, I'm with you. I've heard you tweet that they let go of Contreras or, or do something stupid in regards to him and, and Rizzo. If they insult Rizzo and I see Rizzo in another uniform next year, look, I'm diehard. The Cubs have their hooks on me, but the, there will be some sort of protest. There really will be. I don't know if I boycott Wrigley for a year or only listen on the radio, but there's, there's going to be consequences to that. Yeah, I don't know what my protest will be, but I can imagine a situation where the Cubs have decided that they're not going to they're not going to resign any of these guys. They're not going to bring back Rizzo, not going to bring back Bryant, not going to bring back Contreras or Baez. And frankly, like if there were a conflict and Wilson Contreras is playing for whatever other team and I could watch Wilson Contreras play or I could watch, you know, I don't know, Austin Romine and Tony Walters play catcher for the Cubs. I will probably watch whatever team Wilson's on for that short amount of time, right? The only other time I did this in my Cubs fandom career was when they didn't sign Mark Grace for one year to let him finish his career with the Cubs. And so they let Mark Grace become a free agent. He goes to the Diamondbacks, right? And I vividly remember there was a series in like July or August where the Cubs were still in it. They were playing the Diamondbacks at Wrigley and I rooted for the Diamondbacks. I was like, I, don't, I, I want Mark Grace to win right now. I'm so angry that this team let a franchise player walk that I would like Mark Grace to get a win, to get his ring. It's the one time I've ever rooted against the Cubs. And I sort of have that feeling right now with this core group in the Cubs. And admittedly, it'll go away, right? By like 2024, I'll be back at Wrigley and I'll be happy and all that jazz. But I, I just don't understand why they're acting like a small market team when they're not a small market team. It's acting like Tampa. And I know a lot of, you know, baseball fans are like, hey, Tampa does things right. They win a lot with a small payroll. And yes, that's true. They've been a very smart team for a while. I mean, even before Andrew Friedman, who's great at what he does, but I, I was reading this the other day. When the Rays went to the World Series in 2008, most of that team was drafted by the previous administration. Friedman just kind of took over at the right time. Um, I'm only mentioning that because I got in an argument with someone about Friedman being the greatest front office guy and i'm like he's awesome but i'm not giving him the title of greatest with one ring and even with la he took over a team that won 96 games the season before he didn't draft bellinger or seager anyway sorry i'm going (laughs) off on a tangent everybody not Um, take theo over friedman to be quite honest but that's i I would too i mean obviously we, we as honest cubs fans we know there was a dip there where after 16 17 they maybe have got a little bit I, I, look though, I would be the same if I would if I'd been the guy that won a World Series for Boston and for the Chicago Cubs in 2016. That following year, I probably would have been walking on air, drinking a little bit too much, and, and maybe gotten a little lazy. But it definitely seems like they righted the ship in the sense where they saw where things are going. I look at the 2018 draft; they drafted Nico in the first round and Brennan Davis in the second round, and both those guys, their player profiles are great fastball hitters, high contact guys, spread the ball around. I'm like, okay, so they kind of saw that there's there's something wrong with this idea of the three true outcomes and we need to diversify the lineup a little bit. Um, I, I just realized that we are at an hour and 10 minutes in, Sarah. That's how much I enjoy talking to you. I, I didn't realize we were going that long. Uh, but it's fun to speculate. It's fun to reminisce, talk about the past, the present, and all that kind of stuff. I just think that I think that I hammer in the point, when you have talent like Contreras and Rizzo and Bryant and people who have meant so much to your fan base and who love playing here, you do whatever you can to keep them. Um, again, Miguel Amaya might be a very good player in the future, but we also have a couple catchers behind him 
that could be ready in five or six years, right around the time, hopefully Wilson Contreras' six-year extension is over with. So why not sell high on Amaya? And and I don't know. Again, you and I could do three-hour podcasts about this kind of stuff, so it's so much fun. But please tell everyone about your podcast real quick and where they could follow you. Yeah, no, if I would do this anytime. I love talking contracts and the Cubs with you. Um, this is this was a blast. And we, I you. can't wait till we can do it at the G-Man again uh, for one of Danny's parties. That would be super fun. Uh, you can find my writing about the Cubs at bleedcubbyblue.com. Um, I tweet everything out on my Twitter account at BCB underscore Sarah. And I just started at Fangraphs. So you can find a little limited amount of my writing at Fangraphs more in the future. Um, but just getting my feet wet there. And then if you are the podcasting type, we have been on a bit of a hiatus. Uh, you know, my podcast partner in crime is a, is a mother of three kids who's been doing the pandemic life like all of the rest of us. But if you are a mother with multiple children, you probably have an idea how crazy it is for us to schedule at the moment. We're just getting back in sync with things sort of um, opening up again. But that podcast is called Cup of Cubby Blue. And we generally do a series by series breakdown of what's going on with the Cubs. And I believe they're recording Friday. It's on my calendar. So definitely check that one out. That's awesome. Sarah Sanchez, thank you so much for uh, joining the True Blue Cubs podcast. Everyone, I cannot recommend following Sarah enough on Twitter, reading her work. It's all great stuff. You're going to love it, especially if you're, even if you're not a Cubs fan, if you catch this podcast by chance, check out Sarah because she's going to be writing about all sorts of fun baseball stuff for fan graphs and all the publications Sarah just mentioned. Uh, everyone, thanks for listening to the podcast. Tell your friends. Uh, just going to keep doing these with more and more diehard Cubs fans. And um, I'm in talks with a former Cubs player to get on. So just to get everyone excited, a little teaser for you. But uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. As, and as always, go Cubs. Go Cubs. <laughs>